The Secret Church podcast is a resource from Radical.net. For The Secret Church 13 study guide and other resources that go along with this audio, visit Radical.net slash SC13. This is Secret Church 13, Episode 9. All right, here we go. Three controversial questions in Revelation that we will solve here at midnight, 1 o'clock. Oh, you Eastern Time Zone folks, we bless you for being even an hour later. So, uh, all right. Before we dive into these three questions, I want to reiterate something I've already said. I want to emphasize again. It is sanctifying to disagree about these questions. So when Augustine, Jonathan Edwards, Martin Luther, Charles Spurgeon, and Billy Graham, Graham disagree about these questions, then we can be safe to disagree about them as well, okay? So it's sanctifying to disagree. I mean, we learn from one another as we disagree about some of these things, but it is sin to divide over these questions. So there's some who would like to take these questions and turn them into a litmus test for fellowship in the body of Christ, and I want to see, say as clearly as possible tonight, that is wrong. It's sinful, it dishonors God to divide over issues that are not essential to our faith as Christians. So I was helped greatly listening to a sermon not long ago by uh, Tom Schreiner, Dr. Schreiner, uh, a very scholarly pastoral theologian, and he was preaching through Revelation, and he preached the majority of Revelation from a particular theological perspective, but when he got to Revelation 20, he had preached through the whole book with a perspective on the millennium, he got to Revelation 20, and he changed his mind on one of the questions we're talking about in the millennium. So we got to this text, he opened his sermon, this is what he said, everything in God's word is important, yet good Christians have different views on the millennium. A month ago, and during this whole series, I would have said I'm an amillennialist, but I've actually changed my mind as I studied this passage. So how much are you going to trust, how much trust are you going to put in me tonight, right? I'm not very stable on this issue. And that's, that's helpful. He goes on to say, you know, it's good to be reminded that our confidence is not in a preacher, but in God's word. So well said from a brilliant theologian who is pretty unstable on his view of the end times. So with that foundation, let's ask these questions. First, starting with the book of Revelation, what does this book mean and why do we have it? Believe it or not, the book of Revelation was not written to inspire a Left Behind series. So it's interesting. Revelation is the book, I read somewhere, Revelation is the book that people in the church most want to hear taught because they don't understand it. At the same time, Revelation is the book that preachers in the church least want to teach because they don't understand it either. And it can be tough. You sit down, you start reading, you go through your quiet time in the morning, you find yourself meditating on this apocalyptic monster, and you're saying, I'm not sure what this does for me today and how to apply this monster to my morning. But you got four different interpretations of this book traditionally throughout Christian history. And it'll, it'll get a little technical here, but just go with me. Stick with me. If you need to stand up during this session, feel free to do that. Preterist interpretation, which says that these prophecies and revelations were fulfilled in the first few centuries of Christianity. So basically, some people believe that what's written in Revelation was fulfilled not long after it was written. Some say in the prof- and it was prophesying the fall of Jerusalem in the first century. Others believe prophesying the fall of the Roman Empire in the fifth century, but not beyond that. So start stopping there. Then you have the historicist approach that says these prophecies have been and are being fulfilled in the course of Western Christian history. Basically, more recent history, particularly the last 500 years or so, many people have read Western Christian history, in particular, into the pages of Revelation. So during the Protestant Reformation, many Reformers believed, like we talked about, the Pope was the Antichrist, and talked about how that kind of developed. There's, there's, there's pluses and minuses that go with all these, but just keep going. 
That leads to the futurist interpretation, which says that all these prophecies are largely unfulfilled. Basically, chapters 4 through 22 are still awaiting fulfillment in the future. There's different versions of this view. Some believe these prophecies will be fulfilled literally in the order in which they're listed in the book of Revelation. Others believe these prophecies will be fulfilled not quite as literally or strictly chronological as they're described in Revelation, but that it's that's still yet to be fulfilled in the future. Then finally, there's the idealist interpretation, which says that these prophecies are being and have been fulfilled symbolically, not literally, but symbolically, through the history of the church. And this interpretation views Revelation basically as a symbolic portrayal, a picture of the conflict between God and Satan and Christ and his church throughout history against the forces of sin and evil, a conflict that's ultimately reflected in every age of the church and will ultimately culminate in the ultimate triumph of Christ over his, uh, Christ and his church over Satan. So which one of those is right? I'm not going to say which, which one. I, when you look at all four of these, what you'll see is there are things that we have to learn from each of them. Each of them have, have been held by Christians at different points. Like the preterist view there, we need to seriously consider how these words spoke and applied to the very first people who read them. Like the historicist view, we need to think about how this cosmic war between Christ and Satan has played out in every age of the church. Like the futurist view, we need to how, consider how Revelation is pointing to a coming reality, the kingdom of God that's going to be consummated in a new heaven and a new earth, final judgment, final redemption. And like the idealist view, view, we need to seriously consider the symbols of this book and what they represent, not reading, always reading too much literal into them to the point where we skew the meaning of the text, which that leads to the next point. Revelation is a unique book in that it contains three different genres. So when you ask, what is the book of Revelation, meaning what type of book is it, that's not an easy question either. Either Other books in the Bible have definite genres, psalms, poetry, gospel narratives, New Testament epistles, or letters. So what's Revelation? Well, Revelation is a series of apocalyptic visions. That's what apocalypsis, revelation, means. It's the translation of the word apocalypsis. So it's filled with visions that John has of heaven that make a predominant use of symbols and numbers all throughout Revelation. We won't go into the details of that, but there's a predominant use of symbols and numbers in these apocalyptic visions. So you have apocalyptic literature that's filled with prophetic announcements. So blessed is the one who reads the words of this prophecy, Revelation 1-3 says. So it's prophetic in the sense that Ezekiel, Daniel, Isaiah, Zechariah are prophetic books about how the kingdom of God has come and will soon be consummated. So this is a series of apocalyptic visions through revelation through symbols filled with pro- prophetic announcements that is also written as a congregational letter. So you get to Revelation chapter 1 verse 4 and the book sounds to start like an epistle from Paul. John's writing a letter to seven churches in Asia Minor. He says, from God in Christ through an angel to his servant John for the church. And, and this, is, this is written to churches in the first thing. That's why cha- chapter 2 and chapter 3 are written to seven different churches. And this is important for us to remember. I, I joked that this was not written to inspire a left-behind series. But no, this was written to, to churches, to real Christians in the first century, to encourage them in the midst of what they were walking through, which leads to two significant contexts behind this book. And this is important in all, every time we study the Bible, but especially when we study Revelation. There is a specific historical context here. There's, a, there's Christians in the first century who are struggling in their faith, who are giving in to the pleasures and pursuits and possessions of the, Ro- possessions of the Roman Empire around them and are tempted, being lured away by the world. At the same time, they're being persecuted. Many of them are facing challenges, like we've talked about tonight, because of their faith in Christ. And they're being tempted to silent, be silent in their witness in order not to, to profess Christ. And so there are brothers and sisters who are reading this book, hearing it read, actually, who are, who are being encouraged and exhorted in their faith by it. 
So we can't run past that and just think, well, what does this have to do with the year 2013? No, we've got to think first about what does this have to do with the specific historical context, the people to whom it was written. And then back up from the historical, specific historical context and the overall biblical context and realize that this is the climax of the New Testament, the Bible. It contains 400 allusions to the Old Testament. So whenever we encounter obscure passages in Revelation, we have a whole Bible that's here to help us understand them. So... So we've got specific historical context, overall biblical context, in the middle of it all, one essential reminder that we can never forget. When you read this book, this is huge, this book was not written to promote hopeless speculation about the future. The book of Revelation was written to fuel hopeful obedience in the present. Now that may catch some people off guard, but let me say it again. Not written to promote Hopeless speculation to cause confusion for Christians. It was not written to cause division in the church. Not written to promote speculation about the future. Many people think that's the purpose. The purpose of Revelation is to drive us to charts, map out the end of the world, speculate, debate on how this or that's going to take place. That's not the purpose of the book. Certainly, Revelation speaks about the future of coming Christ, the end of the world, but that's not the primary purpose of the book. The book of Revelation was written to fuel hopeful obedience in the present. You look at John, Revelation 1-3. John says, Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear and who keep what is written in it, for the time is near. So God is calling through John these churches to obedience. And it's interesting, when you get to the end of the book, you get to the end of the book, you see Blessed are those who obey, blessed are those who obey all throughout the book. And then you get to the end. If the Bible, if this book was just about the future, you'd expect it to end with picture of heaven. All right, put a period on it, close the book. Instead, Revelation chapter 22, eight of the last 15 verses in Revelation call God's people to obey, to stay faithful based on what's been talked about all throughout the book. Revelation 22, 7, blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. So when we read the book of Revelation, we need to be careful not to get so caught up in charts that we don't look at our lives and ask the question, are we faithfully following Jesus? Are we walking faithfully with Jesus? Are we proclaiming Jesus? That's what this book was written for, to fuel obedience in the present. That's, what's this book, Revelation? What does it mean? Second, what is the millennium and when will it happen? One of the most prevalent questions in the book of Revelation, a question that revolves around this passage in Revelation 20, revolves around the millennium. 1,000 years is what millennium means. A reference to a time when Satan will be bound and Christ will reign for 1,000 years. Read Revelation 20 with me. Then I saw, first few verses here. Then I saw an angel coming down from heaven, holding in his hand the key to the bottomless pit and a great chain. And he seized the dragon, that ancient serpent, who was the devil and, devil and Satan, and bound him for 1,000 years and threw him into the pit and shut it and sealed it over him so that he might not deceive the nations any longer until the thousand years were ended. After that, he must be released for a little while. Then I saw thrones, and seated on them were those to whom the authority to judge was committed. Also, I saw the souls of those who had been beheaded for the testimony of Jesus and for the word of God, and those who had not worshipped the beast or its image and had not received its mark on their foreheads or their hands. They came to life and reigned with Christ for a thousand years. The rest of the dead did not come to life until the thousand years were ended. This is the first resurrection. Blessed and holy is the one who shares in the first resurrection. Over such the second death has no power, but they will be priests of God and of Christ, and they will reign with him for a thousand years. When the thousand years are ended, Satan will be released from his prison and will come out to deceive the nations that are at the four corners of the earth, Gog and, Ma- Gog and Magog, to gather them for ba- battle. Their number is like the sand of the sea, and they marched up over the broad plain of the earth and surrounded the camp of the saints and the beloved city. But fire came down from heaven and consumed them, and the devil who had deceived them was thrown into the lake of fire and sulfur where the beast and the false prophet were, and they will be tormented day and night forever and ever. Okay, that passage. We hear about a particular thousand-year period of time that's connected with the end of the world. At six different points in the first seven verses, John references this thousand years, this millennium. 
And for the last 2,000 years, Christians have debated and disagreed about exactly what that means. Someone said the millennium is a 1,000 years of peace that Christians like to fight about. So, let's fight. I'm just kidding. Here's the deal. In this passage, it's clear. Satan is bound, thrown down, sealed in a bottomless pit. For a 1,000 years, he's unable to deceive the nations. During that same period, either martyred or faithful Christians come to life and reign with Christ in what's called the first resurrection. At the end of that time, Satan is released. He mounts a final assault against the church and he's overthrown and destroyed. The rest of the dead rise along with Satan, the beast, and the false prophet. Death and Hades itself all judged before God. So that's what happens there in Revelation 20. That's summary. Simple, right? Well, no, not so simple. Because there's all kinds of questions surrounding this passage. I've just listed a few of the main ones here. Three major questions. One question. When? When is this going to happen? One of the big questions in this text and really in all of Revelation is, is the book of Revelation arranged chronologically or cyclically? Cyclically. And specifically, is this passage, Revelation 20, and the text surrounding it, are these texts arranged chronologically or cyclically? So here's what I mean by that. Revelation 19, you, I put in your booklet here, Jesus returns at the end of Revelation 19. So if you're understanding Revelation chronologically, then it naturally flows that after Jesus returns, Satan will be bound. Then Christians will reign with Christ for a thousand years. And after that, Satan's finally defeated. We're all judged. It's as simple as that. But others would say, not so fast. Others say the book of Revelation is not written to be read chronologically, but cyclically, meaning the whole book is a series of repeating cycles, repeating cycles of seven in, in many minds, many people's minds. So what's happening here in Revelation has actually already been described here in chapter 20, has already been described in places like Revelation 16. And you compare Revelation 28 with chapter 16, verse 13 through 16, chapter 19, you'll see that this is just repeating something that's already been talked about. So it's not, not chronological. Jesus comes back, this happens, this happens, this happens. Instead, there's cycles that are being described here in Revelation, and we don't need to read it chronologically. That then leads to another question. Is the millennium then before Christ returns or after Christ returns? Does Jesus inaugurate this millennium, which is what we would conclude if we were reading it chronologically, or does Jesus return to the end of this millennium, which is what we might conclude if these passages are arranged cyclically? And for all those who are thinking, well, who cares if all of this is in the future? We'll just see what happens when it happens. And we need to realize that how we answer these questions shed light on how we understand not just the future, but the present. Because all this affects our answer to the question, is the millennium present? Is it happening now? Or is it future? Is it still to come? There are some people who believe we're in the millennium now. Some believe the millennium is still to come in the future, before Christ returns. Some believe the millennium is still to come in the future, after Christ returns. Are you confused yet? It's midnight. We're asking these questions. We're going to figure this out. So then you have, how long? Is the millennium literally 1,000 years? Some people say, there it is. The Bible says it. Plain as day. This is 1,000 years. Or is the millennium simply a planned, perfect, limited time? Other people say John's used figurative numbers all throughout Revelation. They're symbolic of different things. We've seen 1,000 uses a number to refer to completion and perfection. The point here is the millennium is a complete, perfect, limited period of time that God has set. So you've got different people coming down on both sides of that question. Then you've got the questions of what and where in Revelation 20. You've got some people seated on thrones. You've got souls coming to life and reigning with Christ in a first resurrection. So what does that mean? Will the millennium involve a physical resurrection of Christians to reign on earth during the millennium? Which is how many people interpret this passage. That Christians from throughout history will come to life and reign with Christ during a thousand years period on earth. Some would say that's clearly what this text is teaching. That's one option. Or will the millennium involve a spiritual resurrection of Christians to reign in heaven during the millennium? Some would say that the reign of Christians is a reference to what happens when followers of Christ die. Souls resurrected to heaven, intermediate state, where they reign with Christ now as they await the final judgment and the second resurrection, which will be a resurre the resurrection of their bodies. So there's all kinds of debate and disagreement over what this first resurrection is, how you understand that, affects the way you understand the rest of the passage. Again, not just 
for the future and the end of the world, but it affects the way you understand the present state of Christians who have died in the past and who are now in the intermediate state. And the way you answer these three major questions then leads you to three major views on the millennium that have been posited throughout church history. First is premillennialism, the belief that Jesus will return before the millennium, premillennialism. Now, this is hard to pin down because there's some variation among those who hold to this view concerning the timing of Jesus' coming and the tribulation, which is another question we're going to talk about in a minute. Some people hold to premillennialism, believing that Jesus is going to come back before the tribulation. Others believe that Jesus will come back after the tribulation, but still before the millennium. Those who believe that Jesus is going to come back after the tribulation are referred to usually as classic premillennialists or post-trib premillennialists, but then you've got those who who describe, well, we'll just, we'll get to them in a second. We'll start with this group. Classic premillennialists, post-trib, after the tribulation, Jesus will return before the millennium. So in classic premillennialism, people understand from Revelation 20, the rest of Scripture, and here's it summed up. This is my attempt to sum it up. After a time of great tribulation, Jesus will return to establish a millennial kingdom on earth. And the argument here is that the Bible talks in numerous places, like Isaiah 11 and Isaiah 65, about a time when there will be peace on the earth, but it's not the new heaven and the new earth that's still to come. And these passages, according to premillennialists, along with Revelation 20, envision a time of peace during which Jesus will rule, rule on the earth. Zechariah prophesies this in chapter 14. Paul mentions this and implies there's an interval between Christ's coming and, 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 and eventually the new heaven and the new earth coming down, 1 Corinthians chapter 15. So during this millennium, Jesus will rule on the earth and Satan will be bound in hell, according to Revelation chapter 20. Clearly, the premillennialist says, Satan is not bound now. He's blinding the minds of unbelievers, 2 Corinthians 4. He's at work in the heavenly realms, Ephesians 6. The whole world lies in the power of the evil one, 1 John 5 says right now. So premillennialists believe that during this millennium, Satan will be bound and many people will turn and trust in Christ. And for those who trust in him, those Christians will reign with Christ. In the past, present, Christians will reign with Christ during the millennium. And then at the end of the millennium, which could be, some believe it's literal, some believe it's figurative thousand years, some premillennialists believe literal thousand-year reign. Others open to more configurative, complete, perfect period of time. But after the end of the millennium, Satan will be released, which Revelation 20 describes. And during that time, rebels will battle against Christ. Eventually, rebels will be defeated by Christ. And all unbelievers who have died will be resurrected to judgment. After this final judgment, the eternal state will begin. There is premillennialism. You understanding? You follow? Okay, here we go. Then... There's post-millennialism, the belief that Jesus will return when? After the millennium. According to this view, during the millennium, which, again, could be figurative or literal a thousand years, the gospel will spread throughout the world, and many people will become Christians, ushering in an age of peace and righteousness on the earth. So the major tenet in this view is that the gospel is going to spread successfully to the nations during the millennium before Jesus returns. Based on prophecies throughout the Old Testament, Psalm 72, Isaiah 5, 45, Hosea, uh, Hosea chapter 2, and then what we've talked about before in Matthew 13 and Matthew 24, this gospel of the kingdom will be proclaimed as a testimony to all nations, then the end will come. So the post-millennialist believes the conditions are going to get better in the world as the gospel spreads through the world. And all of that's guaranteed by Christ's own promise in the Great Commission. And then at the end of the millennium, Jesus will return. And at that time, he will quell final rebellion, he will enact final resurrection, and the eternal state will begin. Eternal, new heaven, and new earth. Now, post-millennialism is 
very much, well, in some ways closely related to amillennialism. There's some significant differences, but I want to move from one to the other quickly because both would posit similar ideas about Revelation 20, which is the focal passage on the millennium. So amillennialism is the belief that the millennium is the present church age, and there is no other future millennium to come in the future before or after Jesus returns. So the amillennialist would differ from the postmillennialist in saying that we're in the the amillennialists would say we're in the millennium right now. That this is a figurative, symbolic, complete, perfect period of time, so not literally a thousand years, that was inaugurated when Christ died on the cross and rose from the grave. So as a result of the death and the resurrection of Christ, Satan, according to the amillennialist, is now bound in the present church age. According to the amillennialist, this binding described in Revelation 20 is a reference to the binding that Jesus spoke of in Matthew chapter 12, verse 28 and 29. When he talks about what his work that he came to do was to bind the strong man, to bind the devil. And he did that at the cross. So Colossians 2.15 says, God has disarmed the rulers and authorities, put them in open shame by triumphing over them in Christ. Through death, Christ has destroyed the one who has the power of death. So Christ has come. Satan has been bound. And as a result, the gospel is going forward to the nations. Which, according to our millennialists, is what Revelation is talking about when it talks about the devil not deceiving the nations. It's not that the devil is not working at all. He's certainly at work in the world, just like 2 Corinthians 4 and other texts describe. But according to the amillennialist, the picture is the devil can't ultimately stop the spread of the gospel to the nations. The Great Commission will be accomplished. The gospel will spread to the ends of the earth. It will be made known among all peoples. Revelation, uh, Romans 15 leading to Revelation 7, 9, and 10. The gospel is going forward to all nations. At the same time, the church is, experienced persecution by, is experiencing persecution by the nations during this present church age during the millennialism millennia millennium which is what we see playing out in the new testament and according to the millennial millennialists during this time the church age christians are reigning with christ and there's varying views among amillennialists regarding the exact interpretation of revelation 20 but the overall picture is that during the church age christians reign with christ much like ephesians 2 talks about we're seated with him in the heavenly places in christ jesus even now while we're alive on earth we're not just going to be conquerors in the future today we're more than conquerors through christ who loves us and then when they die and go to the intermediate heaven amillennialists believe that revelation chapter many amillennialists believe that revelation 20 verse 4 through 6 is a reference to souls of christians who are now in the intermediate state reigning with christ in heaven so then, according to the amillennialist, at the end of the church age, which is what the age we're in right now, Jesus will return to usher in the eternal state. And so these are scriptures that the amillennialist would point to. In summary, the amillennialist believes that we're in the millennium even now. As Christians, both dead and alive, are reigning with Christ. The gospel is going forward to the nations amid suffering and persecution, and Jesus could come back at any moment to usher in the eternal new heaven and new earth. So there you've got three views. Amillennialism, we're in the millennium now. Jesus could return at any moment. Postmillennialism, a millennial reign is still coming in the future when the kingdom of God will infiltrate the world with peace after which Christ will return. And then premillennialism, which posits that Jesus will return to inaugurate a millennial reign of peace on the earth. Thousand years where he will reign, Christians will reign with him. Now, I mentioned among those premillennialists, you have a debate that revolves around the question of number three, what is the tribulation and who will experience it? And each of these millennial positions has a view on the tribulation, but it's premillennialists who have a clear debate among them about the timing of Christ's return as it relates to the tribulation. So these premillennialists can't agree on anything. So Jesus talks about 
great tribulation in Matthew 24. You read through that passage, you'll see it. Then there's reference to those who've come out of the great tribulation in Revelation uh, chapter 7. So, now this this question is specifically according to premillennialists. They would identify the tribulation is an intense time of trial and trouble on the earth that will precede the millennial reign of Christ. So this is, according to premillennialists, what Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24. It's a particularly horrifying time. In those days, there will be such tribulation as not been from the beginning of the creation that God created until now and never will be. That will last potentially seven years based on prophecies I've listed below from Daniel, how they relate to time indicators in the book of Revelation. So seven years of tribulation. And there's two main camps here. The first of which is post-tribulational premillennialism. So I referred to this earlier as classic premillennialism premillennialism, which says that Jesus will return after the tribulation, so post-tribulation, which means that the church will experience the tribulation. According to this view, the church will be present during a great tribulation. And point to different scriptures that, that back that up. In this world, they say believers will experience the wrath of Satan. In other words, Satan will attack. Jesus says this to his church in Revelation 2. Behold, the devil is about to throw some of you into prison so you may be tested. And for 10 days you'll have tribulation. And then Christ will return after the tribulation to inaugurate the millennium. According to this post-tribulational view, Jesus will return for his people when he comes to inaugurate his millennial reign. And whereas people will have experienced the wrath of Satan during that time of tribulation, they will not experience the wrath of God, but instead will reign with Christ on earth in a millennial kingdom. That's post-tribulational premillennialism. But then there's pre-tribulational premillennialism, which says the opposite. The church will be raptured before the tribulation. So this is what we talked about. Christians will be taken away from the world and a secret first coming from Christ. The rest of the world won't know what had happened. The rest of the world will be left behind. You with me? Left behind. So this view understands 1 Thessalonians 4 to be talking about this rapture of the church. And all of this, according to this view, falls in line with what Jesus said to his church in Revelation 3. I'll keep you from the hour of trial that's coming on the whole world to try those who dwell on the earth. Now, during this time of tribulation, this is key for this view, various prophecies, including those pertaining to Israel, will be fulfilled during the tribulation. So remember those, all those signs that we talked about that need to be fulfilled before the return of Christ? This is where the post-trib, premillennial person would say, this is when many of those signs will be fulfilled, including promises to Israel. So during the tribulation, these prophecies will be fulfilled, and then Christ will return again after the tribulation to inaugurate the millennium. The key word there is again. So this is the second. Jesus could come twice. One for his church secretly. Second time with his church publicly to inaugurate the millennium. So those are the controversial questions in Revelation. What does this book mean? Why do we have it? What's the millennium? When will it happen? What's the tribulation? Who will experience? Now, I know. I know. It's some people hear these questions and you're tempted to throw your hands up in the air and say, does any of this really matter? Why even talk about these things? Aren't there more important things to talk about than this? And in a sense, there are. Like we've discussed, these are, there are primary doctrines that are much more important. But that doesn't mean that questions like this aren't important at all. Yes, there's room for disagreement here and all kinds of things we don't know for certain. But still, this is God's Word. This is God's Word. God has spoken. And He's given us minds to understand. He's given us hearts that want to know Him. Hearts that seek Him. And as followers of Christ, we want to love God with all of our hearts and our souls and our what? Our minds. 
So it is an expression of our love for God and our love for His Word to understand His Word, to wrestle with His truth and let it drive us into deeper dependence on Him and His Spirit. Even when we know, like we've talked about, that there's some things we're not going to know for certain on this side of heaven. So we study these things diligently because we want to know God. We want to know truth. And we study these things humbly. So you might ask, well, David, where do you come down? And I hope it's not obvious based on the way I presented these views because I wanted to present them fairly, but I'll give you real quick. Premillennialism is probably the most common view in many churches today, including both pre-trib and post-trib varieties. Postmillennialism, the less common view today, but it has a more common view in different eras. Uh, it was more common in different eras of church history. than amillennialism, in a sense, you'd have to be crazy to think that we're actually in the millennium right now. But in the end, I'm actually crazy enough to believe that to believe that Revelation was written cyclically, not primarily chronologically, to a church undergoing suffering and trial and temptation and persecution all throughout the book. The Lord is telling His church then and us today that Christ is reigning now. We have victory in Him now. We must proclaim the gospel with boldness in the middle of suffering and persecution now, knowing that Jesus could come in any minute and will come when the nations have been reached with the gospel, at which time He will consummate His kingdom. Now, I hold this position loosely. After all, this is the position that Tom Schreiner, I mentioned earlier, he held before he changed his mind when he studied the Bible. So apparently he's smart enough to change his mind, and I'm not yet. And I realize this is a minority position, not only among many churches represented here tonight. It's probably a minority position among the pastors here at Brook Hills. I've never taken a poll of our pastors, but i got a feeling I'm in the minority. Because I've had some great discussions with some of our pastors who definitely disagree with me, but that's the beauty. Remember? doctrines do not divide us. Christians in the same church disagree over tertiary doctrines, but it does not in any way decrease the intimacy of our fellowship with one another. And then Christians divide from non-Christians over primary doctrines, and Christians are willing to die for those doctrines. In other words, I may fall down the amillennialist camp at this point, like today, but if you put a gun to my head in persecution, I could turn premillennialist real quick. <laughs> Just like, I'm fine. Yeah, we'll go with that. Thank you for listening. You can find more episodes from Secret Church and thousands of other free resources at Radical.net.